calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, Ragers, sorry to be giving you another throwback episode, but it is for a good reason. Uh, This week has been a little bit hectic because I have finally decided, if you didn't listen to the mini episode, this will be news to you, but I've decided to leave my retail job and put in my two weeks. So right now I am working a little bit extra with some of my other jobs and I was double booked every single day this week. So I wasn't able to complete an episode to the quality up to my standards. So I wanted to give you another throwback episode, but I wanted to also give you all the hope that within the next two weeks, starting in the month of May, I am going to be able to dedicate so much more of my time to this show, which is the most important thing to me in my life. And I just really want to thank all of you over the last six months where I've been doing this on my own for being so patient with me and getting everything out and taking my time to make sure that I'm still giving you all the content that you all deserve. Thank you so much to everybody who has joined the Patreon. If you haven't done so, I am so, so excited for this next book that I am going to be covering because I am going to be covering the audiobook Still Learning by my dear, dear friend, India Oxenberg, who has become practically one of my best friends now. So I've been bugging her lately to get this book into a physical copy, but as of right now, it is only available on Audible. If you don't want to actually purchase the subscription for Audible, they do have a trial, so you should be able to get that trial, download the book, and listen to it before you'll have to spend any money. Audible, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I didn't I didn't say that. <laughs> But I think that India's story is really important because she went through something that I think to the world sounds so out of this world and so crazy, but I saw so many connections between her story and my story, and I feel like the way that she tells it really helps you understand what psychological manipulation does to a person and how it changes a person. And I think that that's something that isn't 
discussed enough in our culture. Same thing with groupthink. And while April is slowly coming to an end, we're in the middle of it. It is Sexual Assault Awareness Month as well. And her story is heavily involved with sexual assault. And that's a lot of the trauma that she has worked on recovering from. So I felt that that part of the story was really important for the month of April as well. So the first episode covering Still Learning, I'm just going to be going over the story, which is going to be really weird now that we're friends and I'm talking about a person that I know really well. But she is going to be coming back for another interview for Patreon only for the second episode where I'm going to be able to ask her any of your questions that you have after reading the book. So I'm really, really excited about that. So if you haven't joined the Patreon Angry Feminist Book Club yet, it's available at the $5 level on Patreon at patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. And if you want to get these episodes for free, along with some extra content every now and again, which we'll be picking up in the next couple of weeks as well, you can join the $8 level called The Feminist Faves. And now I decided to re-release the episode that Keegan and I did on the Jane Collective because abortion is still such an important topic in our conversation right now. And I was watching a video yesterday that was making the point that we make in this video, and that is that abortion will never go away. It's just going to become less safe and more underground. But the story of the Jane Collective shows how these incredibly smart and driven women could get together to try to perform as safe of abortions as possible for the women who needed it, and how they were able to truly make a difference in so many people's lives. I think it's also a great inspiration for us right now who may be feeling a little bit stuck in certain parts of the country and in certain parts of the world, feeling like we don't have anyone to rely on for reproductive care. I feel like this story is really inspiring that we can rely on one another for support to be able to get what we need. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join me on Patreon. It's just such a blast. And thank you again so much for all of your love and support. I truly appreciate and love every single one of you so, so much and enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello, Miss Keegan. Well, hello there. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird way to open this podcast. Yeah, like we haven't been on FaceTime for an hour already together. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, this week is a Madigan pick. You know, I was thinking about that whenever I was doing my research or my prep for this episode. Like, oftentimes we are, of course, we want to do a lot of the same things. And we're both really excited about topics, no matter yeah. who comes up with a topic. Yeah. But I w it was occurring to me, like, last week when we did Comfort Women, that was my suggestion. This week is your suggestion. I almost feel like you know when it's a Keegan pick or a Madigan pick. Like, you know, I feel like yeah. there's a vibe. I wonder <laughs> if there is a vibe. And this is a Madigan vibe for sure. In the is it really? Way. What made you What made I you think, think so. this was a Madigan vibe? What gave you that vibe? I don't know. I don't know. I was just like, yeah. I mean, not that both of us aren't super into this topic, but it would be you to be the one to bring it up where it's just like, yeah, there's this covert group of like badass ladies yeah. who are, you know, 
And I stumbled upon it because we, so originally we were talking about, or we wanted to talk about um, like at-home abortions and DIY abortions and things like that, especially because, you know, our reproductive rights, again, are kind of being called into question. So I feel like it's kind of a good time for us to discuss, uh, you know, what people did before abortion was legal at all. And in my reading about DIY abortions, I started reading about the Jane Collective. And I was like, well, this is a fantastic story. It's like, you know, got a beginning, middle and an end. I thought it would be a really, really cool thing to share with you all that I had never heard of before. Me neither. Me neither. And I will say, like, when you were, when you suggested doing at-home abortions, I was like, yes, that's a great topic. And I knew that there were lots of women who have shared their stories and have shared their stories recently, like older women who had experienced things like that in the past who shared their stories recently. But I was kind of like, how are we going to do a whole episode on this. I was like, we'll figure it out when I'm doing the prep for it. Right. How are we going to contain it and all that kind of stuff? Right. So when you texted about this specifically, I was like, oh, well, that's kind of more centralized. It is one kind of story. And then when I started reading about it, I'm like, this is fascinating. Like, this feels like a movie. Like, it feels like somebody could have made a movie about this. Well, they actually had, like, multiple movies in the works. Like, Elizabeth Moss was supposed to be in one. I don't know if any of them actually came out. That wasn't really what I was focusing on in my research. But I did remember seeing that, you know, there have been books written and there have been scripts written and all this kind of stuff. But I don't know if there's actually been, I mean, definitely not a mainstream movie that we would know about. Um, But maybe, you know, more of an indie film or something like that. Um, Um, Because this needs to be picked up by like Warner Brothers or Universal or something to make some amazing movie out of it because the story is Is, unbelievable. It is amazing. Uh, So I got most of my notes for this from a New York Times article, a Chicago Tribune article, an NPR article, and then actually... Wikipedia, sometimes I will use Wikipedia, but usually it's to supplement other information. Right. But the Wikipedia article on Jane Collective is actually really good. And it has a lot of direct quotes from other sources in it. So if you want kind of a centralized place to go, I would actually recommend the Wikipedia. Because, you know, sometimes it's hit or miss on Wikipedia. But this one was pretty good. I mean, a sneak peek into how I do my notes. I always start with Wikipedia to give me like a A structure. Yeah, it gives me a structure of like a timeline, general ideas and events of what happens. And then if I read something in Wikipedia that interests me, I side goog. And then I go from oh, there. And then I'll come goog. back. Okay. And then I'll do another side goog. And then I'll come back. Or if you scroll all the way down to the bottom and you look at all the references, you can click yes. on that. So oh, that's a great way to do it. So if you are a student and you're like, I can't use I can't use Wikipedia as one of my references because most teachers don't accept that. Yeah, exactly. Reference. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to the Wikipedia page, scroll to the bottom, and go to their references, and generally you will find some good sources and information. Oh, so there's you'll a find hack like for you. old old uh, newspaper articles you'll find I mean I find great stuff in the references there and it looks like you pretty much listed all of the websites that I read but I also read a really great Vanity Fair article called Codenames and Secret Lives How a Radical Underground Network Helped Women Get Abortions Before They Were Legal so it sounds like we've pretty much got a lot of the same yes I also did read an Allure.com article basically talking yes. about the history of DIY abortions because I wanted to kind of have a good reference point for how this all got started. You That's know? actually the article that I started with when we were going to do just DIY abortions in general. And then 
that spurred me into the Jane Collective. So that's funny. D- um, I have to say, DIY abortion sounds so like cutesy and cottagecore. And I'm like, it is not cute. <laughs> sounds very Pinterest, you know? I don't right? think they were calling it DIY abortions no. back in the 70s. I think that's something that's probably been coined more in our <laughs> recent times. But right. uh, more yeah. at-home abortions would probably be more accurate. To, yeah. Uh, do it yourself, you know, get her done. But there's so many articles that say DIY yes, abortions, 100%. you know, so like it's yes. totally a thing. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit about before the 1960s and 70s, because that's where when our story takes place. So in 1930, abortion was listed as the official cause of death for 2,700 women in the United States, though there are likely many more that went unrecorded. And then luckily by the 40s, Antibiotics were introduced, so those numbers went down, but complications remained, especially because there was not a safe and legal place for women to receive abortions. Yes. So I want to give you some examples of at-home abortion methods because they were varied and they were incredibly dangerous. So some of those included, and this isn't even a complete list. Like there are even some more kind of like wacky and out there things that people did because desperate times, you know what I mean? Like people get desperate. That's what I was going to say. You know, when I was reading a lot of these methods, right off the bat, it goes to show you the level of desperation these women had to right. not nobody have a child. Would, nobody would do this if they were just kind of like lukewarm about the idea. Exactly. You know, you have to be you have to be in such a place where you are terrified. So yeah. some of those methods were insertion of leeches or cayenne pepper into the vagina, mm. swallowing gunpowder, throwing oneself down the stairs, hitting oneself in the stomach with a meat pulverizer, Ugh. consuming turpentine, consuming opium, swallowing lye, inserting knitting needles or wire hangers into the vagina, uh, which, of course, the wire hanger did become the symbol of at-home abortions, the thing that none of us ever want to repeat because you are... I guess I should have given a trigger warning at the top of this episode, but, you know, we'll give it for the rest of this episode. Right. You are tearing up your insides, essentially. Like, you don't know what you're doing with a wire hanger. Yeah, essentially what an abortion is is that they're going in and they're scraping the inner tissue of your uterus and they're pulling it out. So if you're trying to do it yourself, it would be very, very difficult to be able to be exact, especially if you're using a very sharp instrument. Um, Oh, God. I cannot imagine the place that I would have to get to mentally to be able to use a hanger on myself in that way. I cannot imagine the mindset. It's just pure desperation. So by the mid-1800s, abortion was illegal in almost every U.S. state. In the state of Illinois, which is where the Jane Collective took place in Chicago and that area, um, at the time the Jane Collective was formed, abortion was considered felony homicide. In the 1960s, it was estimated that a third of U.S. women who wanted no more children would have at least one unintended pregnancy by the end of their childbearing years. In the 1950s and 1960s, it was estimated that 200,000 to 1.2 million illegal abortions occurred annually. So that, I mean, it just goes to show you like, this is never going to not be a thing. Right. For as long as women can get pregnant unintentionally. Right. 
They will find ways to try and not be pregnant if they don't want to be. Exactly. Exactly. So this obviously was a growing issue with young women and a woman by the name of Heather Booth, when she was 19 years old and a student at the University of Chicago in 1965, she had learned that her friend's sister had an unwanted pregnancy and that her sister was not doing well. Her sister was suicidal and was very, very desperate to end her pregnancy. And Heather, um, I read a little bit about her background, but I didn't take a lot of notes. So she comes from like an activist family. Her father is like a total progressive activist and things like that. So she had that in her already. And she couldn't stand the fact that her friend's sister was in so much pain and couldn't get an abortion. So she contacted the Medical Committee for Human Rights to help her friend's sister. And then she was connected to civil rights leader and surgeon T.R.M. Howard, who worked at Friendship Medical Center in Chicago. And she was able to get her friend's sister an abortion for $500. And... After this initial success, word began to spread that Heather was the one that could, like, hook you up with the abortion that you needed. So she started receiving calls from all these other women. Right. And she said, by the third call, I realized I couldn't manage it on my own. So I set up a system. We called it Jane. Yep. So I also wanted to point out some of the statistics surrounding death at this time due to at-home abortion. So it was pretty high. And not only was it high with at-home abortions, people DIYing them themselves, but it was also very high even amongst um, these abortion counseling clinics or places you could go because you never actually really knew if you were going to a professional um, or if you were even going to somebody who actively cared about your health or if it was someone who was just trying to charge money um, trying to make money off of you, or you know. pr- or prey on women, because that was another big issue: is that these these women looking for abortions would go to incompetent practitioners who would often prey on them sexually. They would prey on them financially, and in a lot of cases, again, these women would die because they wouldn't be going to licensed and practiced doctors, you know, they didn't know what they were walking into. But again, with the desperation that they had, it was almost like it didn't matter. They had to at least try. And unfortunately, a lot of women lost their lives out of that. Yes. So in New York City, around this time in the 1970s, the late 60s and into the 70s, abortion accounted for half of all pregnancy related deaths among non-white and Puerto Rican women in New York City, and 25% of pregnancy related deaths for white women. And oftentimes those deaths were due to hemorrhaging or sepsis that would occur um, from either at-home abortions or abortions that were done in an unclean environment by somebody who was not a a doctor or cared about your well-being or health. Exactly, exactly. And so I like that they chose the pseudonym Jane because they thought that it was kind of like an every woman name. It was kind of, you know, same reason that we do Jane Doe, things like Mm -hmm. that. So it was a way to kind of remain anonymous and to also kind of show, you know, a lot of this collective is about women supporting women and unity. So I think there was something kind of great in all of them having this one pseudonym that they went under so they were all one. It wasn't an individual cause. Everybody helped each other. And these women really looked at, looked out for each other. But obviously, at the beginning, the only Jane was Heather Booth. And she was running this, like, 
third party abortion clinic out of her college dorm. Yeah. You know? And um, so she ended up finding this abortionist by the name of Mike in quotes. I don't know his real name. So we're just going to call him Mike. Um, And so Mike ended up being their new like quote unquote doctor that did all of the abortions for them. And she was averaging about one woman per week, and they were mostly low-income women and women of color. And she continued to do this job by herself until 1968, so for about a year, until she left college, got married, pregnant, and got a full-time job. So she actually, she married a guy named Paul Booth. They had met at an anti-war sit-in, and he was the leader of the Students for a Democratic Society. So they were definitely this kind of, like, activist couple, but she felt like, yeah, exactly. But she was like, obviously, you know, I have this life. I can't do this on my own anymore. I, you know, I don't know how much I can be a part of it. So she reached out to two women by the name of Ruth Sergel and Jody Parsons, along with 10 other women who came along to help her and to kind of take over leadership a little bit. Yeah, so at first, Jane, the collective Jane, connected women with doctors like Dr. Mike, but eventually the group's members started performing the abortions themselves. Well, it was kind of a scandal as to why they started doing the abortions themselves, because they, Mike had told them that he was a doctor and that he was licensed, and that it wasn't until, you know, the numbers of the women coming in, they needed more help, uh, the two women... um, what are their names? Ruth Sergil and Jody Parsons started becoming like his assistant in during the procedures. And I guess they got so close that he eventually kind of like admitted to them, like, look, I'm not a licensed doctor. And it almost and that almost shut down the whole thing. They lost so many people that worked for them because they then felt like they were no better than the back alley abortionists. And so a lot of members of the Jane Collective felt hypocritical and they ended up leaving the group. But the women that stayed behind realized that they were different than all the back alley abortionists that were trying to do things. They wanted to take care of their patients, and so they then learned how to do the procedures themselves. Right, because it was a fairly, look, again, obviously we don't advocate taking matters into your own hands, you listener, but the procedure itself was not a very difficult procedure. Now, of course, there are always risks involved, but there was another reason why they wanted to start doing them themselves outside of the fact that several members to this day of the Jane Collective feel very strongly about women having control over reproductive health because, you know, I did see some quotes from women who were previously part of the Jane Collective who felt like even Roe v. Wade was kind of a way for the patriarchal society and men to take over control of yes. women's reproductive health and yeah. that they wanted to be able to do that for each other because it's just like women supporting women. We understand the struggle, you know, yes, they, um, they had an understanding of the fact that they could be the best companions for their patients because they could have the most empathy. And a lot of the women that ended up working for the collective had actually had abortions from Mike before, and they had such a great experience that they started volunteering and working for the collective themselves. 
themselves. Right. Another reason why they wanted to start doing it themselves is because the women of Jane were able to charge just $100 for a procedure as opposed to the standard $500 that doctors or other abortion counseling services might charge. The rate could go up as high as $1,000, which is equivalent to $6,500 today, which for these low-income people, these low-income women who were trying to get these services, that just wasn't feasible for them. Because most, um, most of these women who were turning to these kind of alternative methods of getting an abortion were lower income or women of color. Like it has been said so many times that if abortions are made illegal, abortions are only being made illegal to poor people. Rich Uh, people will always find a way to get a safe abortion. Exactly. So the people that were calling Jane were not those people that were lucky and had their own little ways of going about their reproductive needs. You know, these women, like we've been saying, I'm going to say this word a million times, they were desperate. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the means. And uh, what I love about a lot of these women, too, is that if the women didn't have the means, they would do their best to kind of make up the prices themselves. Um, And they really, really did understand that they had to be able to be accessible to every woman. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit because I want to talk about how they spread their word of mouth a little bit about this idea. So they really grew by word of mouth originally, and they started posting these signs throughout the city that said, pregnant, don't want to be? Call Jane with the phone number underneath it. And like, there's no crazy colors or pictures or anything. It's just the most like basic looking ad, but it was seen all over the place. So these women that needed the assistance of Jane would call the number and that went to an answering machine where they were instructed to leave their name, number, and date of their last period. And then they would be called back by a number of the of the collective who would contact them and schedule a meeting for them to come in. And then they always had counseling sessions before the actual date of the procedure so the women could come in and they would speak with one of the Jane women who could explain the procedure and any any explain any questions that the women had before the actual date of their procedure. Yeah, they also gave them many, many opportunities to change their mind if yeah. they wanted to. At no point did they ever make them feel as though they were locked into this, you know, yes. up until the moment that they went in, right? So like they could say at any moment, you know what? I don't want to do this. I changed my mind and I want to go home. So Right. Yeah. One of the Jane Collective members, Martha Scott, said, you know, there's lots of points along the way where they could have said, no, I changed my mind. I don't think anyone chooses to have an abortion lightly. So, you know, she says by the time these women are there, their minds are pretty much made up already. But they were well, they, but they were very caring in the way that they explained everything. You know, some people who went through it said that they felt very respected. They felt like they answered all the questions they had and really made the women feel comfortable about what they were getting into. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine. Here's this. Here's that word again. Desperation. Like, I can't even imagine calling just a number on a flyer that I saw on the subway. And like I would good. be I would be so scared that it was some kind of scam or that, you know, these people were trying to take advantage of me or it was gonna get me into trouble yeah. in some way. I would be so like scared to call that number. Yeah, like a setup. Like I feel like you would only call if you were really at a point where you were like 
well, you know, what do I have to lose? Yeah, yeah, totally. So then if they decided to go through with the procedure, they were given an address to what they called the front. So they rented out homes and apartments in Chicago uh, as kind of like covers for mm-hmm. like doctor's offices, essentially. So first they would be taken to the front. One woman by the name of Alice Fox talked about her experience, and she said that she had taken a bus to a house in Hyde Park, which was the front, where she waited in a living room with about 20 other pregnant women with their children, mothers, or partners with them. She recalled cookies, muffins, and stacks of women and their bodies covering the living room coffee table. So that was a book that was eventually retitled our bodies ourselves oh our bodies ourselves right which is like a huge Mm -hmm. bestseller i can't remember what it was but like i feel like most people have heard of that book Mm -hmm. um but the uh women and their bodies was like the original version of that and that was what jane gave to every patient that came for the counseling sessions and then when you would come to the front there'd be extra copies laying out on the table along with the cookies and muffins for you She said that five women were called every few hours. Then each group was driven in a circular route to an apartment or what they called the place. So they were always very aware that, you know, they didn't want people to be tailing them and following them. So that's why there were multiple locations. They would drive around in circles to try to, like, confuse anybody that was tailing them to really ensure that these women were getting to a safe space. So the place was a private apartment. Alice said she was taken into a bedroom. And while the procedure was going on, a female counselor held her hand while Mike explained the procedure as it happened. And so I think for a lot of us, um, this is probably something that we've felt comfort from in doctor's offices before. At least I do. I appreciate if a dentist or a doctor, anybody is explaining what they're doing as they're doing it. Absolutely. So I feel like I have autonomy over what is happening and I'm okay with what's happening. So I appreciate that even back in the 60s and 70s, this male, not doctor, but kind of doctor, you know, is taking his time to make sure that the women know exactly what he's doing in each procedure and telling them medically what's happening, not dumbing it down, but right. explaining and what's everything coming medically. Next, right? Exactly. And they were also super honest, which I yeah. think is really important. By this point, yes, Mike, listen, he had a little bit of, of shade in his background. Yep. But at this point, by the way, it wasn't just Mike doing these yeah. procedures. Like the other women were also partaking in doing these procedures as well. And they were honest with clients who came in and they told them up front that they were not doctors. And they also told them up front what the money was going to be used for. So the yeah. $100 that you're giving us is going back into the Jane Collective to purchase supplies, to pay for rent for these fronts and places yeah. um, and other you know expenses related to that. Yeah, I really, really loved reading Alice Fox's account. Uh, Like I said, she was so grateful for her experience that she ended up signing up to be a counselor for Jane. Like I said, a lot of women who ended up working for the Jane Collective were former patients who just had a really great experience. And Alice Fox, a few years later, she went back to school to study to be a physician's assistant and would spend the rest of her life and career in gynecological care and working with women with HIV. So a lot of these women, it was kind of their like, introduction to what their passion is in life. A lot of them mm-hmm. went on to be activists or doctors or something in this field because it, it it affected them personally and they were able to do something so great with it that I think it probably empowered them throughout the rest of their careers as well. 
Yeah. Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this, Madigan, but maybe you do in your research. But at some point, Mike fell off. I don't know why. Well, Mike, Mike fell off mostly because of price. So he was very, very firm on his $500 price for the abortion. So that was actually another reason why more and more women wanted to learn how to do the procedure because if they were in charge of it and they didn't have him at all, they could control the prices better. So it really was that initially uh, that they felt was going to make them um, be more accessible to women by not having to have one person or even having part of the group kind of control what the price would be. Right. Because part of what made the Jane Collective so unique and interesting is that there were no men. By the time the Jane Collective got to its peak, and when they were at their peak, they were performing abortions four days a week, typically serving about 10 women every day. I mean, I was reading sometimes up to 25. I mean, like it... They were They're servicing busy. women constantly. Yeah. And part of what made them so unique is that it was a collective of all women. And it was all women who were doing the procedures. There were no men at by the time the Jane Collective was doing the, you know, at their peak doing the most. Yeah. Now, I because we're talking about the fact that it was all women and it was very inclusive, I do want to bring up the fact that a lot of the women that worked for the Jane Collective were white middle class women. Oh, yes. And there was one black woman by the name of Lois Smith who criticized the organization for their lack of diversity as, like I said, nearly all of them were white middle class. And she said, you guys are white angels that are going to save everybody. And where are the black women at? Which I think makes total sense. So Lois kind of educated the women that were already part of the Jane Collective about why it could be so much harder for black women to get abortion. And one of the things that I was reading about that she was explaining to these women is that a lot of black nationalists at the time saw abortion as an agent of black genocide. You know, so we didn't want to kill any of the future you know, generation to come. So abortion was seen as as homicide, you know, to a lot of people. Which is a very misogynoir kind of mentality. Very much so. We've talked about on this podcast before, um, the black nationalist movement for all of the good, you know, that came out of that. If you want a reference point, go listen to our Black Panthers episode. Mm -hmm. Um, It was run largely, although women kind of kept the ball moving in the black nationalist movement, um, the figureheads and the loudest voices were the men of that movement. Right. And there was still this sexist hierarchy that existed within the black nationalist movement. And they did find not just abortion, but many forms of birth control um, to be a form of black genocide. But... You know, we already kind of discussed the mortality rates among non-white women, minority women at this time, the pregnancy-related mortality rates, um, the much higher rate of abortion Deaths of deaths related to yeah. abortions. Yeah, they're um, they're ignoring like they're ignoring the lives that already exist that are in danger, mm-hmm. rather than you know. But instead, they're acknowledging a, a potential life. A- absolutely, and why I mean, that I needs to like, be saved. I feel like that is kind of the entire pro-life in quotes one hundred percent is you are advocating for the potential of a potential life. Yeah, rather than 
what that's doing to a life that is actually here and now and breathing and living. Exactly. You know, exactly. Um, um, but Lois ended up becoming part of Jane as well. And she was there specifically to help counsel its black patients, which I thought was really great that they were welcoming and open to more intersectionality and realizing that, yeah, like we are missing something that could be really important to most of our clients. And that is seeing representation when you're coming into that space and feeling right. safe in that. Right. And being able to say, you know, maybe I can't identify with every situation uh, that every person has gone through who walks through these doors. Yeah. And maybe we need someone here who not only understands maybe a little bit more where you're coming from, but also there is this feeling of connectedness that people have with other people from their community. And this situation had to have been so scary for all of the women who were entering into it, right? That if you can present them with someone who can make them feel a little bit more at home, then you should do that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I... I can imagine that walking into any space and being the one person that's different would never be something that you would get over. It would never be something that's going to make you feel comfortable. So the fact that they were able to listen to Lois and hear that, like, look, this is something you're lacking. If you really want to make every woman feel included, you need to start diversifying a bit, which I think is great that they were able to listen to that and that she was able to make her voice heard to become a part of the movement as well. So I want to talk, I'm not going to get into detail about the procedures or anything, but they were able to give abortions pretty much at any stage of pregnancy. They learned several methods, such as the cannula method, which is for early stage abortions, and the supercoil method, later stage abortions. Like I said, I'm not going to get into it. I googled it. If you're interested in that, you can. Um, But I will talk about the DNC method, because this is what the Janes used um, most often, because it's for earlier term pregnancies and um, essentially what they would do is they would apply an anesthetic Uh, For any women who have been to a gynecologist, you know what a speculum is. Even saying that word makes my vagina tighten up. I hate the The speculums more than anything. Um, But then they essentially would take a tool where if you were to look at it, it kind of looks like a dental tool. Um, But I hope it's not as sharp. Um, It's almost like a it's like a knitting needle slash dentist tool that they would then go in um, and kind of scrape the inside, the inner lining of your uterus to remove a fetus, I guess. Um, so that was the not a doctor. I probably said so many of those things wrong, but that was essentially what these women were learning. And there was one woman that said that by and large, they were dealing with healthy women and pregnancies. They also had an obstetrician that would do follow up visits. They also learned how to perform pap smears. And they found a lab that would read the results for only $4. So they became kind of like a really full service clinic. It's like a planned parenthood. Yeah, kind of an underground planned parenthood. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And no deaths were ever reported of women who had abortions through Jane, which is huge. In addition to the fact that there were no deaths ever reported, um, and when we say that, Jane operated for seven years. It was active for seven years, and the group performed approximately 11,000 first and second trimester abortions. And one the obstetrician that they used, um, who provided the follow-up visits, said that their safety rate was comparable to legally operating clinics in New York. Like, it was about the same and much better than these back-alley abortionists who, as we said, the mortality rate for that kind of procedure was very high. They didn't lose a single woman. Now, that's not to say that there were not risks involved, because while the procedure was fairly simple, some of the clients did end up in the emergency room and some did, in very unfortunate cases, have to undergo hysterectomies because of mistakes that were made in the procedure. But I mean, these are the risks that you kind of undertook in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these women understood that. And I would assume that that's probably a lot of what they discussed in the counseling sessions, too, about the possible risks and things that could happen. Um, to these women. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that they can probably accredit their success to the fact that they cared. I don't think there were a lot of abortionists at this time that took the time to care about their patients. Well, and if you hear stories from some of these women when they are telling stories, now they're older women, right? Recounting stories of their back alley abortions um, that they had in their in their 20s yeah. or in their teens in the 60s or in the 50s, not only do these people not care, a a lot of times these men who were performing these um, procedures, not only do they not care about these women, they openly scorn them and dislike them and blame them for the situation that they're in. You will hear woman after woman tell stories about how the doctors were not gentle with them, how they would shame them, how they would tell them, um, you know, basically say degrading things to right. them about how they ended up in that situation in the first yeah. place, that they deserve whatever kind of pain they're going to experience It was almost more just like a money-making grab, I think, for Absolutely. a lot of the abortionists. And it was mm-hmm. almost like a criminal enterprise. You know, there wasn't care and caution and patience in any of right. the methods before. And, you know, they even say that, it's rumored that the cops kind of like knew about Jane, but just let them be. Um, there was one person that said, unlike other illegal abortionists, Jane did not leave bleeding bodies in motels for the police to deal with. So they weren't seen as an eminent threat to those who even just had maybe heard rumors about the collective. They were like, well, they're not leaving dead bodies on the streets for us to deal with. Right. So they're I not mean, really a problem. The truth of it is... 
you know, a lot of these people, whether it be um, police women yep. themselves who have undergone these procedures yeah. or wives or daughters or sisters, mm-hmm. a lot of the police had had family members who had had interactions with Jane. Yeah. And so they did kind of take this blind eye approach to what was going on. And likewise, and this isn't even something I thought about, but because you mentioned that it was kind of this criminal enterprise yeah. <laughs> these backdoor abortions the mafia also did not bother jane no like they weren't because they weren't making enough yeah. money like jane was charging only what it needed to charge in order to keep operating it was essentially a non-profit but speaking of the mafia so, that's how mike learned how to do the procedure he had learned from a doctor who was part of the mob and that's how he learned how to give abortions so right, they do because, have like, some as- mafia ties <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, because as we were saying, of course, if you can make money, if you can charge $6,000 to a desperate woman, uh, of course, organized crime is going to get in on that. You know, like it's desperation and easy money, essentially. Mm -hmm. So um, but but it does speak to the fact that Jane was not in it to make money, that the mafia wasn't even bothered with them, although they were essentially potentially taking business from them. Yeah, yeah. You know, they were like, eh, it's, it's not our word. Yeah, really, exactly, you know? exactly. So all was well until 1972. And I love, I love that they uh, are so specific with this. Two Catholic mm-hmm. women. <laughs> I knew it. I was like, and every single source points that out. They're like, these bitches they were, were Catholic. Catholic. We want to point it out. <laughs> um, I'm just going to bring up again that I was called a baby killer when Al Gore and George Bush were campaigning against each other in school because there were don't kill the baby posters everywhere and I had the gall to tell people that I was a democrat (laughs) as like a nine-year-old or eight-year-old or however old I was you know one issue voters yeah exactly I mean that's the catholic church for you there if you need just a quick like run-up of the catholic church anyone who is pro-choice is the devil. So I'm not trying to overgeneralize. That was my experience. So, (laughs) well, I mean, that is the stance of the Catholic Church. I mean, I think only recently, if at all, I could even be completely wrong about this, but it it has only been kind of in modern times that I feel like the Catholic Church has at all even opened its arms to any form of birth control, let alone... Abortions, like yeah. No I mean, I'm not a part of it anymore, so I can't really tell you. But I know that when I was in school, birth control and such was still frowned upon. Taboo. Yeah, you were supp- if you are Catholic, your your mission in life is to create more followers of God and more Catholics. Jesus. So Ugh. you know that's kind of the whole thing. So these two Catholic women. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, Catholic listeners. I know. I'm not. I'm like, ugh, you know. I had a horrible experience. If you're fine with your Catholicism, that is totally fine with me. I am not. Okay. But anyway, so there were these women that walked into the Chicago police station and they were reporting that one of the women's sister in law was planning on having an abortion through the Jane Collective. So there, this case was given to a 31 year old homicide detective, which blew my mind when I read that, that a homicide detective was in charge of this case by the name of Ted O'Connor. And Ted and his partner tracked Jane to an apartment in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago. And one of the women by the name Martha Scott, who was part of the Jane Collective, was there when the police arrived. And I guess when they came in, they asked 
for the doctor. Like, okay, who's the doctor? Where is where's, he? Where is he where's at? Where's the guy? Where is he at? And Martha was just kind of like, there wasn't any guy. There was just us. So It's just us. Just us ladies. Seven women were arrested and they became known as the Abortion Seven, which is funny because it was kind of around this time that the Chicago Seven trial was going on as well. Um, so I wonder if there was kind of this like tie-in to that because... It was going on pretty much at the exact same time. Um, I feel like that's always how media is. It's very zeitgeisty yeah. that like the the popular consciousness kind of replays. Itself. Well, they got lucky that it was seven people both times. You yes. know. By the way, if you haven't seen the trial of the Chicago Seven on Netflix, I highly recommend it. It is a great movie. So, seven women were arrested and taken into custody, and they were charged with eleven counts of abortion and conspiracy to commit abortion. And the seven women who were uh, arrested, I'm going to give their ages as well, just because I find it amazing how young these women were. So the arrested women were Susan Gallitzer, who was 21, Abby Gallen, 27, Judy Pildes, Pildes, 29, Madeline Schwank, 30, Martha Scott, 30, Sheila Smith, 22, and Diane Stevens, 23. So there was like a 29, a 30, and a 30-year-old, but the rest of them were pretty much in their early 20s that were arrested. The fact that they were doing such a good job at what they were doing that young is amazing to me. I mean, and not only that, but the bravery it took for them when it got to... It really speaks to how much they believed in this cause, the bravery that, sorry, it really speaks to how much they believed in this cause, how they reacted upon being arrested. Because while they were in the police van, some of the women or one of the women removed a stack of index cards from her purse that she had taken. So when they knew they were being raided, she went, she took a stack of index cards that had a list of names, names and information for women who were seeking to get abortions. She took it, she put it in her purse so that when they were in the back of the police van, she took them out, she ripped them up, handed them out, and all of the women swallowed them to protect the information. Fuck yeah, they did. Uh, of the of the women who were seeking abortions. Yeah, and there, so that's incredible. It's incredible. And there was another woman who wasn't arrested by the name of Laura Kaplan who went back to that place and got the rest of their little Rolodex and burned the rest of them. So they were it was very important to them that even if they went down, the women who were involved that had the procedures wouldn't be taken down with them. Yeah, you know, I also found it interesting that um Gian or or is it Jeanne? I'm not sure. Uh, Gallitzer Levy, who's one of the women, she said that she later recalled that the police treated them, the abortionists, better than they treated the patients. Yes. Which kind of speaks to what I was saying before, is that there is this kind of moral shaming about women who are seeking abortions even more so than the people who are giving the abortions. Even the, you know, the men who were giving abortions were able to take this moral high ground as though that they were somehow morally better or more responsible than the women who were receiving them. They weren't making the choice to do it. They didn't do it. It was other people. But they were the ones actually you know if you were really if you really cared or thought it was really that terrible so what you're saying is you're shaming the act of having sex 
more than you're shaming the actual abortion 100%, like itself really 100% and and so she she stated uh, the actual quote that she gave was there were all kinds of class and race things going on with the police they felt more like us than like the women they were supposedly protecting from us and they kind of wanted that relationship so that was bizarre, just bizarre. Yeah, and I, I was like, yeah, I would think the is. same thing, especially being arrested and taking in. I mean, these women all faced a maximum of 110 years in prison at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. One to 10 years possible on each count Ugh, of abortion. Absolutely yes. crazy. So the seven women hired Joanne Wolfson, who was known as a feminist lawyer, and it was funded by the National Organization for Women, who decided on the strategy to essentially delay the court proceedings as long as possible because they were waiting to just to see what the Supreme Court would decide in Roe v. Wade. It's a very smart move. So they knew that it was going to be more, it wasn't going to be about the state that was going to either save them or hurt them. It was going to be the country's decision, the Supreme Court's decision. The arrests occurred simultaneously to abortion laws being debated on a national stage. Just six months after the Jane arrest on January 22nd, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion in the United States with their decision in Roe v. Wade. And through this, do you know how old the lawyer was, Sarah Weddington, who represented mm -hmm. Jane Roe? 26. Jeez. She was 26. You know, we, we have to do an episode on Roe v. Wade. We definitely will. It's kind of an interesting story. It's also interesting what happened to uh, the woman who was at the center of that case yeah. later on in her life. That it, It's very fascinating. She became an anti... She got really religious and became an anti-abortion advocate I didn't later know on in that. her life. It's, it's so, it's so, the story is kind of Oh wild. my gosh, we have to do that soon because now I want to know everything. That yeah. is crazy. I just couldn't believe that Sarah Weddington, her lawyer, was 26 years old and like mm -hmm. did the thing. Like did the thing. Oh yeah. Like it's absolutely crazy. So with that, all of the charges brought upon the abortion seven were dropped. They were done. Which is kind of interesting to me because in 1970, Alaska, Hawaii, New York, and Washington had repealed or like decriminalized a lot of like their anti-abortion laws. Uh -huh. So it's kind of wild to me. I don't know if it's because the Jane Collective was operating prior to that and they were able to kind of like retroactively or if it's because abortion was still illegal federally, like nationally. Like I'm not sure. I'm Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I thought that was strange because they were in New York and New York in 1970. No, they were in Chicago. Time. Oh, you were so right. What was I thinking of? Oh, my well, gosh. See, you are you're thinking right. New York because that was the only option for women at the time. If they wanted to get an abortion, there was places in New York for them to go to. So maybe that's why you're thinking of that. But you are absolutely right. I had just a total brain gap. Oh, good. No, but, that, but it's a great thing to bring up because that makes total sense. Um, but the thing that I thought was kind of cool is that they weren't even charged with practicing without a license. Like, they completely dropped everything. All they had to do was, like, promise never to do it again and return their medical instruments. They were like, okay. Yeah. You know, I think it is interesting, though, that, like, 
I think it's an interesting conversation to be had just because I always think that this is a good thought exercise to be had. And we've already discussed kind of the whiteness and the class issues involved here with these women. Had this been a group of brown or black women who were doing the same thing, Definitely. if they would have kind of gotten off with just like a slap on the wrist. I wonder what would have um, happened even situation. if Lois was there that day. Exactly. If Lois, exactly. Lois would have been that, treated different than the other seven that were there you know i bet i bet so yeah. you know i think it i think it does speak to the fact that these were kind of educated middle class upper middle class white women who were arrested right and you uh, and you did say that they were treated better than the women who yes. chose to get the abortion so i think that law enforcement at least where they were you know, we're kind of okay with letting them go because even so... And the fact that they were young too, yeah. I bet probably played into it because you could say, you know, these were just like willful young whippersnappers, you know. Well, but just- I think also a lot of people had very complicated views on the issue because the, the yes. detective, the homicide detective that was assigned to the case said, my side is, I don't want to see a life destroyed. That life is helpless. It has no choice in this. And that angers me. On the other hand, I've never been pregnant and I never will be. It's a tough issue. So I appreciate you know, that he's I saying, my, you know, like, yes, I, I don't like I re- it, but I've never been there, you know? Right. I mean, that was in the NPR article yeah. that I, I read. And my initial reaction was to roll my eyes of course. because I'm like, okay. The first half of it is I roll city. Yeah, it it is, you know, and... Not to make a broad generalization, but with a last name like O'Connor on the police force in Chicago, I bet you you're Irish Catholic. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And it's probably coming from that mentality. And so to say that, you know, this is a life being destroyed is very pro-life talk. Yeah. Because, again, we are talking about, in most cases, this is a clump of cells. I mean, even in all the articles I was reading, when we say later term abortions, we aren't talking about nine month abortions, right? Like we are talking about first and second trimester abortions. Um, We're not, we're not talking about that. So it, it is not a person, you know, like I think that it's very important to make that distinction. And so the fact that this was assigned to a homicide detective in the first place is kind of, that's what blew my mind when i read that he was a homicide detective that was looking into this it absolutely blew my mind instead of like a human rights specialist i don't know who who it would be besides homicide but that did seem ridiculous to me when i read it for the first time absolutely absolutely but i will give credit to him (laughs) i mean the bar is on the floor but i will give credit to him in that i feel like most Men, especially most men who hold this particular mindset. And and level um, of authority, too. Right. Don't even stop for a minute and think what it must be like to be in that situation, mm-hmm. right? And to say, like, I've never been pregnant is actually kind of a big thing to say. I kind of thought so the same thing. So not to give him yeah. a ton of credit for doing the bare minimum, but, you but know. But I think it goes to show you that there has been an internal conflict for people forever when it comes to abortion. Because I think that what he said can be true for a lot of people even today, where, you know, I I know of a lot of people and a lot of my family is this way where they're they're pro-life and that kind of stuff, but they also have an understanding of the fact that people make decisions for themselves 
You know, there well, you can't I, you I can't govern like, others' bodies, but you can also say that you wouldn't do it yourself. You know, sure, yeah, sure. I mean, but I also feel like a lot of men, especially the older they get, because this man was interviewed older in his yeah, life, yeah, right? yeah. And I do feel like the older they get, the more life that they see. A lot of men will change their perspective on this as well, right. because most likely you have been either in a relationship with a partner where there's been kind of a, a scare yeah, or um, you have a sibling or a parent or somebody in your life who has been in a very scary pregnancy situation or a pregnancy scare situation. And if you are the partner of somebody who is going through that, maybe you're not ready to be a parent either. And I think that that sometimes changes Definitely. the mind of, of a lot of men. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks that it they have to go through that. it themselves to get it. Right. But I think that's probably how a lot of men started to change their minds. It's what we were talking about with the police, why they were probably turning a blind eye because they had women in their lives that maybe had gone to Jane. Or they themselves weren't ready to be fathers either. And then it changes. It's very easy to sit on your high horse and condemn people for making this decision when really the reality of it is if you are engaging in sex, you know, and you're not ready to be a parent, this is a possibility for you. It's a possibility that you might end up in a situation where you have to make this choice. Uh That that goes for everybody who is having sex. I don't care if you're on birth control. I don't care if you're using condoms. Like, of course, do those things. It cuts down on the likelihood that you will experience an unwanted pregnancy, but it can still happen. And so if you, you cannot sit from a place of moral superiority, if you are a person who who does not want to have a child and you are engaging in sex, yep. you could end up in a position where you might have to make this decision. I mean, and yeah, it this is, will be with your partner. This is where, you know? this is where empathy goes a long way. You know, you got to put yourself in other people's shoes before you go and making decisions for other people, you know? So I want to talk a little bit about the Janes today because Heather Booth, like I said, she is an activist through and through. She never really stopped doing her thing. She would be a great person to do as a feminist fave because I did not know about her at all. And she's got a full Wikipedia page, a full one. Um, She was quoted in 2019 when she spoke about the current abortion and reproductive rights in the United States saying, what we're seeing right now is legislative, administrative, and regulatory terrorism against Planned Parenthood, women's health, and women. Another former member that I mentioned earlier where I talked about her experience with Jane and then she ended up joining the collective was Alice Fox. She commented on the parallels to what's happening today to what was to what they were experiencing in the 60s and 70s. She said, people are asking if our abortion rights are taken away. What do we do? If you think about a model of political action that is based in human experience and personal need, Jane was it. And I think that's kind of an amazing thing because I feel like when when I look at what's going on in our Supreme Court today and how they are obviously trying to get rid of Roe v. Wade, I have I find some solace in thinking about the women and others out there who could still help me. This has happened before. You know, there is such a strength in supporting each other that if worse comes to worse, there's still going to be people out there that will help you. Yeah, absolutely. And help you because they care about what happens to you. Yeah. 
you know, which I think is really important and doesn't happen enough in our society because we are such a late stage capitalist society that I feel like we're almost skeptical of people wanting to help just to help. Yeah. You know, and I really feel like these women in the Jane Collective, they put themselves in harm's way because they believed in something bigger Uh and they believed that it was really important and they cared about the stories of these women who walked through their door and they wanted to try and make their lives even marginally better or easier. And so I'm not going to say that abortion isn't a complicated topic for a lot of people. I was raised very much with like um, conflicting viewpoints on on the subject uh-huh. of abortion. Uh, but what I think we can, agree, well, we, we should all be able to agree on is that we need to care for the people who are with us here right now. Yeah. And we need to do what's best for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't claim to care about people and then completely dismiss the lives of these women. Exactly. Who, for whom abortion is life-saving yes. sometimes. Yes. You know? And I'm I'm so glad that, you know, there are enough people, we hadn't heard of the Janes before this, but there are enough people out there who had. And on October 21st, 2020, Jane Fonda presented Heather Booth with the personal PAC's Irving Harris Award at a virtual luncheon, which was also attended by Hillary Clinton. And the PAC is an Illinois-based political action committee that is dedicated to electing pro-choice candidates to state and local office. That's amazing. Isn't that great? So I love that these women, like, you know, this was such a start of their activism careers. And, you know, they talk about how they all kind of went their separate ways. You know, if they were housewives, they went back to being housewives and things like that. But as far as I can tell, looking at these individual women and their experiences after being part of the Jane Collective, it seems that a lot of them took that as a jumping ground for what would become their livelihood and their careers and their passion throughout their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially being so young, I think it was probably such a formative and also very empowering time to know that like, you know, these are they weren't accredited doctors. They didn't go to medical school, but they were able to help over 11,000 women yeah. relatively safely go on to live their yeah. lives. And I think that's absolutely amazing and definitely needs to still be celebrated today. Absolutely. I'm completely with you. I thank you for bringing this to my attention. Um, man, I just can't imagine all of the lives that were touched and affected. I kind of want follow-ups on all of those 11,000 people I know. who went on. Because also I want to point out, you know, just as with the woman from Roe v. Wade, there were also many stories of the women who I could find who had gotten abortions through uh, the Jane collective who had children already, yeah. you know, like they, they'd had families already. They were on their third or fourth child and they could not, they just could not deal with the idea of having another child. Yeah. You know, I mean, there the, were some the financial responsibility, the, just the, the having that many kids and how exhausting that yeah. is. You know, I feel like there's this mental image that people have of women who get abortions as being these single carefree, promiscuous or selfish. women. I feel like it's seen as always being a very selfish decision when right. it's really and I do not. Say, 
I do want to say, if you want to get an abortion just because you don't want kids, that's a valid totally. reason. If you are a single woman and you are promiscuous, that's totally okay. Oh, yeah. But I do, I do want to just point out that because I feel like for so many people, especially, you know, me growing up in a very religious household, that is the image that was painted yes. of women who get abortions. There are these, you know, they're not you know, like you and me. They're, yeah, right, exactly. They're right. other. That's not true. A lot of them are housewives yeah. who have kids already or are in abusive relationships. And a or, lot of them, there know, was one woman that had Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, and was worried about radiation and she got pregnant. And she's like, I don't want to do, go through radiation and hurt the potential baby inside of me, the fetus. So I don't want to have this baby right now. I want to save my own life. And that's why she went to Jane. You know, there are so many reasons Right, there are exactly. a million reasons for why somebody would want to get an abortion. And the fact that there was a group of people... And they're all valid. They're and all they're valid. all valid. And the fact that the that this collective was able to take every single person without judgment of their decision or why they're doing something, but just a complete level of understanding and respect that I think... I don't know where you would find that in a lot of other places. I'm sure that was something for a lot of women that was really eye-opening to have that kind yeah. of support yeah. from your fellow human, you know? Oh, yeah, completely. Thank you so much for listening. I, I really hope that you all enjoyed this as much as I'm sure we both enjoyed researching this topic. Yeah. I learned so much. Um, if you have any ideas for future episodes, we always get wonderful ideas from you all. Please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. We are also taking coming out stories right now. We will be doing that episode in the last week of June. So if you would like to share your story, please go ahead and email us or direct message us that as well. Just a reminder that if you would like to remain anonymous, we do respect that. We will not give away your identity. Just let us know in your message and we will be sure to do that. Um, you can go on our Facebook group page and chat with the other listeners. You can go to the business page and like us and leave a review. But more than anything with those reviews, we really, really love it when you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive five-star review. That way people can find us and love us as much as you do. All right. That's all we got for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to rage to on. To rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.